This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on our podcast, the battle for bigger stimulus checks wages on. Pennsylvania Senator Pat Toomey on direct payments to Americans amid the global health crisis. The idea that we're going to send out $2,000 checks per person to households that have had no loss of income, that makes no sense whatsoever to me. Across the pond, United Kingdom regulators have greenlighted the Oxford AstraZeneca COVID vaccine for emergency use. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson just tweeted out calling this a massive triumph for British science. Plus, in spite of the pandemic, some private companies are on the rise. New to the Unicorn Pack, $2 billion no-code software platform, Uncork. CEO and founder Gary Hoberman on the new age for enterprise. For the last 30 years, there's been no improvement in the way we actually create the software that runs on that infrastructure and creates that data that's being analyzed by all these machine learning technologies. Those stories and Intel's pressure to make a deal. It's Wednesday, December 30th, 2020. Today is New Year's Eve Eve. Yesterday was the eve of New Year's Eve Eve. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick along with Joe Kernan. Andrew is out today. So you're here. Uh, what's today? Wednesday? You're here. So you, yeah, I'm here. So yeah, you had today and tomorrow. You had the Christmas. Days. You had, uh, did you notice a difference between uh, like working and then not working yesterday? And, and to, it's, not, it's not that much difference from home, is it? Except for sleeping, but you can't sleep in know. either. Sleeping, so. sleeping helps. Yeah, no, what, an extra, you know, 40, extra 45 minutes? Yeah. Anyway. A couple um, hours. A couple hours. Breaking overnight. This is kind of interesting. The UK, remember, first with uh, Pfizer. Now, uh, UK, yeah. first with the AstraZeneca uh, COVID vaccine um, developed in conjunction with the University of Oxford and okayed for emergency use. CNBC's Jumana Pacetti joins us uh, now from London. This will, I guess, add to the supply. It's a little bit different. What can you tell us, Jumana? Yeah, no, so it's a groundbreaking day for the UK and also for the world, Joe. And actually, the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson just tweeted out calling this a massive triumph for British science. But to your point, there are a few differences between this vaccine and the existing vaccines that are available on the market, specifically Pfizer, Pinezac, and uh, the Moderna vaccine. This is actually a viral vector vaccine, which basically means that it can be stored at much higher temperatures. So at normal refrigeration temperature between 2 degrees Celsius and 8 degrees Celsius. It also means that it can be scaled up very quickly in terms of mass production. And to that point, AstraZeneca today has said that they've been speaking to some of their global partners about the rollout of up to 3 billion doses of this vaccine in 2021. So that has huge implications for lower income and middle income countries and the rest of the world. As for the UK specifically, well, the country has ordered 100 million doses of the vaccine. That's pretty much enough to cover the entire population, excluding children, and are expected to receive as many as 4 million doses in the next couple of days. AstraZeneca has said that they're ready to start distributing today and tomorrow, so the jabs can start as soon as January the 4th. And just a quick word as well on the government scheme to roll out the vaccine. As the other vaccines, this is a two-dosage regimen, and typically there would be a four-week interval between the first dose and the second dose. But what the UK government are saying is that they want to give as many people as possible that initial dosage, uh, so as many inoculations as they can actually roll out in that particular period before giving the second dosage. And this is so that as many people as possible get that baseline immunity 
they wait 12 weeks and then receive the second dosage. And that's part of a new strategy and something that we've not seen before being tried out here in the UK. But certainly very, very big news for the UK and for the world, Joe. Yep. Um, we've talked quite a bit about the immunity from that first dose, even on the, the Pfizer and Moderna. And Dr. Scott Gottlieb has, has said 50, maybe 60 percent. You would think you introduce the, uh, you know, what you're trying to get some immunity towards. You do it the first time. Maybe it's not as uh, going to be as effective as, as the double dose, but you would think that that would help and, and maybe lessen the severity of a lot of the cases. Uh, interesting that you point out that the viral vector allows it to, uh, to uh, exist at higher temperatures. With just a, with a stretch of nucleic acid, the half-life on that at normal room temperature, and you should be glad that, that it's not going to sit around. The messenger RNA isn't going to be in your system for the next 50 years. Um, so it, but that's interesting that the, it's when, when it's in that adenovirus, it doesn't decompose nearly as quickly, which is also kind of a negative because that shows you that, that viruses don't break down nearly as quickly. It's just the, uh, it's just the little messenger RNA strip. But that's great news, uh, Jumana. And, and that, I was a little bit envious when you said 100 million will do it because we need a lot more uh, over here. I'm sure you'll get there in no time, Joe. We, we just need a few more approvals uh, internationally, and uh, hopefully we'll be looking for herd immunity at some point in 2021. Well, thanks, uh, That That is something we're looking forward to. Dan Loeb's activist fund, Third Point, is urging Intel to explore strategic alternatives after the chipmaker lost market share to Samsung, AMD, and TSMC. In a letter to Intel's board that was viewed by CNBC, Loeb said Intel should consider divesting failed acquisitions. It also said that it had more recommendations that it would like to make to Intel privately. Third Point recently took a stake in Intel worth about a billion dollars, according to Reuters. Intel responded by saying that it welcomes input from all investors. Intel, by the way, is down about 18% this year, while its rival, AMD, has nearly doubled in value. You're still looking at a, a company that's worth just over $200 billion in market cap, Joe. So the position that Loeb's taken is just under half a percent, or about half a percent, we should say. Reading the, you know, the, the motivation for, for his moves, that unfortunately he sounds like he's right. I think Intel even it would be hard for them to get too defensive about it. To argue but, about it, yeah, yeah. I mean, engineering-wise, I can remember going back, actually, what long before Intel lost its, its preeminence. It's hard to do. It's hard to get the, the, the yield that you're making out of the, uh, the silicon wafers. You know, there's all kinds of, of things that, that go into to margins and everything else about what is a very sophisticated manufacturing process, and they have lost uh, a lot of their, uh, their dominance to... And not just to NVIDIA, but even to what was always the perennial also ran, AMD. So I don't know. I don't know what the right move for Intel is. But, you know, a lot of times Loeb gets, gets on to something, and, and the stuff that he's saying is pretty reasonable. Anyway, separately, yeah. uh, he's reportedly eyeing a move, Dan Loeb, into venture capitalism. According to the Financial Times, Third Point is raising its first dedicated VC fund with a target of as much as $300 million dollars. The report says Third Point aims to complete its first round of fundraising as soon as February. Next on Squawk Pod, the battle for bigger stimulus checks. Republican Senator Pat Toomey is against the $2,000 check. It's a very, very badly flawed proposal. We could come back with something that would have a much broader support because it's more targeted. 
rather than spending literally $630 billion, most of which will go to people who have, have had no loss of income. That conversation is right after this. Welcome back to Squawk Pod with Joe Kernan and Becky Quick. Here's Joe. There uh, is a furious debate in Washington right now over whether the new $600 COVID relief checks uh, should be bumped up to $2,000 a person. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell blocked a vote on the bigger checks yesterday and is now coupling them with two other issues important uh, to the president. Uh, Liability protections, uh, getting rid of them (laughs) for tech companies, uh, and election concerns. Senior economics reporter Steve Leisman joins us now with a look at what $2,000 payments would mean uh, for the economy should they be approved. I, I, I self-monitor my, uh, myself on, on uh, Twitter, and I'm not on Facebook, but uh, I, I'm so aware. I, I mean, you say anything, and the haters, uh, Steve, so, I mean, I would never say anything that I could be liable for something, I, I don't think. Do you? So I'm, I don't need liability protection, I don't think. I'm too scared. Not yet, Joe, but one of these days you may need it. I, I Look... I don't want to get I want to stay away from the politics. But I'll tell you, Joe, is the intensity of the political debate is echoed among economists who split on whether these big checks are needed and how much good they'll do. In effect, they're debating why 2K? These would be the biggest stimulus checks ever sent. Let me start off with the downside. Of course, you have to start with the deficit impact of an additional three hundred billion dollars going out the door. It goes to some who may not need it. As a result, much will be saved And there are diminishing returns for every dollar of government spending. John Riding from Breen Capital told me yesterday it probably means a lot more savings and a big hole in the budget. I don't think it means that much in the way of actual aggregate demand. Riding doesn't think Americans can really push up their goods purchases much more. Obviously, they're not doing a whole lot of services purchases. He would prefer to send bigger checks to the unemployed or extend unemployment benefits beyond March and he worries about the possible inflationary effects when the economy returns to potential. Annette Markowska from Jeffries says, the estimate's about 1.5% of GDP is the cost, but it boosts GDP by just 0.8%. That's a sign of the diminishing returns you'd get. All right, here's the upside of the $2,000 checks. Well, in the world, deficit doesn't really matter much right now, at least, and you may actually help the deficit by increasing demand. It helps those who have fallen through the cracks of the existing benefit system, and it could speed up the recovery. David Maracle, chief U.S. economist from Goldman Sachs, tells me this money can get out more quickly and maybe get to more people who otherwise wouldn't get help in the existing benefit system. And I talked to Austin Goolsby yesterday. He sent me this note saying targeting lower income people and at risk groups and at risk groups like the unemployed would be better. But compared with not doing anything, a scatter shot is better than no shot. So it's clear. The economics for these checks are not as clear as they were back in the spring for the $1,200 checks. It comes down to this, I think. If you really think the deficit is a problem, you don't want to mess up how you use what money you have. If you don't worry much about the deficit, well, you might as well send the checks because it could do some good and won't do a lot of harm, Joe. I hear you, uh, Steve. If you, so you're not going to get, you won't get political. Far be it from you or me uh, to, to get political. Um, it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money, but we need it. Is it go to the right people? Both sides, I... Lately, no. Steve, lately, Steve, no, I, 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 I'm ready to go back and be on the debate team because you could assign either side of half of these issues to me. And I think I could make a decent case. You know what I mean? So that there, maybe that's why there's I, I really I really feel that way about this one. And Joe, I, I think the issue is the 
economics right now cannot answer the question about the deficit. We just don't know. People who I talk to are like, we don't know how much it matters, how far we can go. I know uh, Senator Toomey, respect his opinions a lot, is going to come up and say he thinks the deficit is a problem. And I respect that point of view. Um, Joe, can I just end with a, with an economics joke, which is one economist told me, oh, no. and, and, and I'll get oh, lots no. of hate mail on this. Yeah, oh. yeah. What, one economist told me that all you need to know about the economics of the $2,000 check is that Pelosi and Trump both support it. You know what? That, that's, not, that's less of a joke and more of a really bizarro observation that we are now living in that world, that Seinfeldian world where yeah. nothing, where nothing Makes sense. I, I thought about that. And, and, and McConnell, even what he's deciding to do now, he's like currying favor with the president with those two other poison pills that the, he knows the Democrats will never go for those. But if the president really does want the 2000, right. he's effectively killed it, but kind of must but kind of put some salve on on the wound by saying, I'm trying to do this for you. I, it's all crazy. I, that's why I, I don't know. I'm throwing up my hands. I'm trying to figure out uh, some I, of these I got enough, games. I got enough trouble, Joe. I, I got enough trouble sorting out the economics. I leave no, like no. Elon or, you know, and, and, and the brilliant Eamon, brilliant Elon Moy. Right. They get to handle the politics. I'm just trying to sort out the economics of this. Florida, Oklahoma. Which? That's, that's what I'm trying to sort out. And I, I have no idea. I just think maybe it's going to be the over. But then maybe not. Anyway, uh, th thanks, Steve. Uh, Becky, sorry. I, I, we, we digress. Used to that. Anyway, for more on the stimulus battle on Capitol Hill, let's bring in Pennsylvania Republican Senator Pat Toomey. He is against increasing those $600 checks to $2,000. Senator Toomey, welcome. Why don't you explain to people why you're opposed to increasing the checks to $2,000? Yeah, uh, good morning, guys. Thanks for having me back. Um, look, I just think our economy is in such a completely different place today than we were in in March. In March, remember, we were in a full-blown, almost complete universal shutdown we, in some manner of speaking, we just didn't even have an economy for a brief time. And we felt like we needed to come in with massive, massive amounts of money to substitute for an economy. It was extremely broad. It was a meltdown. Today, we're in a totally different place. We had a 33% economic growth in the third quarter. We have come back sharply. We have cut the unemployment rate in half. It's not the same situation. Now, we've got acute problems in certain industries and, and sectors. We know that. Restaurant, travel, entertainment, lodging, those, those areas devastated, people out of work, very grim prospects right now. But more broadly, the economy is in a recovery mode. So the idea that we're going to send out $2,000 checks per person to households that have had no loss of income, that have maybe have six-figure income, um, that makes no sense whatsoever to me. I mean, take a, a, a married couple with two kids who they both work for the federal government, have a combined income of $150,000. You're going to send them $8,000 when they never even had the slightest reduction in their income? That makes absolutely no sense at all. So I, I don't think we should do it. I, I understand your concern, absolutely, and, and hear you on that point. I guess the question would be raised, what, what do you do to the people who fall through the existing benefits platforms that we have right now? Maybe people who were unemployed, who have had their job, that, that lost it because of COVID and have been on unemployment for, for too long and won't be receiving those benefits anymore. What about for, for people who have seen a, a, a drop in their income? Maybe they're underemployed at this point. Is there a way to target those people who aren't targeted in the bill as it's passed to this point. Is there a way, or the, the law that's now been signed by the president, is there a way to target those people 
who have slipped through the cracks and who have uh, been affected by this? So, first of all, that's exactly the conversation I think we should be having, not this universal, you know, helicopter money. And by the way, if this amount of money, which is about almost two-thirds of a trillion dollars is what we're talking about for the direct payments if we raise it to 2000 over $600 billion. If that went just to the roughly 12 million people in the official unemployed count, that's over $50,000 per person. If you say, well, the underemployed number is twice that big, okay, fine, it's $25,000 per person in that situation. So I think that's worth keeping in mind. What do we do in the COVID bill? For the very people you referred to, we extend eligibility for unemployment. We add on a $300 federal payment to whatever the state is paying in unemployment benefits. And by the way, nothing stops the states from paying still more if they decide. We add eligibility for people who have historically not been able to participate in unemployment insurance, like the uh, self-employed folks, uh, gig workers. All of those things are in place. There's, there's rent relief programs. There's an increase in food stamps. There's all kinds of programs that are meant to target the people who are in difficult circumstances. What I can't wrap my brain around is the six-figure income couple that have had no interruption in income and we're still going to send them thousands and thousands of dollars. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Why do you think, though, that the president supports this? I, I don't know. <laughs> I think you'd have to ask the president that. Um, but uh, I, I just think it, it doesn't make sense to have these universal payments. Any, any relief should be targeted. That, that's where our economy is today. It's, uh, it, it's calling for certainly targeted relief for those people who are adversely affected. But thank God. Most people who want to be working actually are working, and most Americans have not, at this point, are not experiencing a uh, reduction in their income, so should really be targeted. If, if this came to the, to the Senate floor as a clean vote, I, I think it would have the votes needed to pass. I think there's only 47 uh, Republican senators who are opposed to it in, in this manner. So are you in favor of what Mitch McConnell is doing by tying this to things, the poison pills, like the... Uh, election fraud, uh, be so, looking into this, and, and the 230 law repeal? Uh, <clears throat> so this is a little bit of a nuance, and I may not have this exactly right, Becky, but I'm not sure that Senator McConnell insisted that these things all be linked in one legislative vehicle. I think what he was describing is the fact that they share in common a need for the Senate to do some work here, uh, to do an investigation, to maybe go through the committee process, maybe to debate this and consider how to refashion this. So I'm strongly opposed to these blanket universal checks. I know many of my Republican colleagues are as well. We'd be open to how this could be repurposed and retargeted, at least a portion of it. Similarly, with Section 230 of the Communications Act, um, you know, I think there are some problems there. I, I think the assumption that these Internet platforms are just passive bulletin boards that allow people to post the message and play no other role, I think it's clear that's not true. And given that that's not always true, what should we do differently? But it's not at all clear to me that you just rip out 230 and tear it up and it goes away. I think that could have very dramatic unintended consequences. So my point is, these are fairly complicated. They are important. We shouldn't just go down to the floor and just have a single vote on one single aspect of this. We ought to consider it in its, uh, in its complexity and see if there's a consensus for some path forward. 
But, Senator Toomey, just to be clear, there may be nuance involved in this, but what Mitch McConnell did was to make sure that there would not be a straight vote on the floor of the Senate well, well, I, for I, simply increasing those checks to $2,000, correct? Right. And I agree with that. What I'm saying is I'm not saying that I don't think Senator McConnell was saying the only way we will consider this as a package with Section 230 repeal and election reform issues in one vote. I don't think that's what he was saying. I think he's saying we're not going to do this as a freestanding measure now. Let's let's consider all of these items. They're all, like I say, they're all complex. They're all important. They all deserve attention. But I, I don't I don't think we should just have a vote, an up or down vote right now on some really bad policy. So it, it, what he's effectively done is mean that it, it won't be considered in this Congress, right? Um, that, that may be the case. But by the way, I would also point out um, it takes 60 votes in the Senate to, uh, to pass something. And it's not clear to me that any of these policies have 60 votes. I think we just don't know. Take 60 votes if you have to overwrite a veto. It would only take 51 votes, wouldn't it? No, to, it's, to, it's two, to be something two that thirds, would... actually. It's two-thirds to override a veto. It's 60 votes under the Senate rules to pass almost anything. There are some exceptions, but none of these items come under the category of those exceptions. It would take 60 votes. Then why not just vote on it? Because, as I said, I think we it's a, it's a very, very badly flawed proposal. I don't think it has the 60 votes, or certainly may not. And we could come back with something that would have a much broader support because it's more targeted rather than spending literally $630 billion, most of which will go to people who have, have had no loss of income. I, I understand your point on all of those things, but <clears throat> I, I also think that, that you think that what's been done in this, in this bill that has been passed and signed by the president is, is probably enough for now. Am I wrong to assume that? Um, look, I'm open to suggestions if there are categories of people that fall through the cracks, as you say, despite the expanded eligibility of unemployment, despite increasing the amount of the unemployment benefits, uh, despite all of the other aid programs that have been plussed up. If there are still people that are falling through the cracks, I'm totally open to um, learning about that and figuring out what's the best way to address that. But we did a lot of work for a lot of months, Democrats and Republicans and the administration, to try to cover people who are in adverse circumstances. I know we went a long way towards accomplishing that. It's, it is a $900 billion bill. That's a lot of money. Um, if there are people remaining, then I'm totally open to doing something additional. But, um, but you know how I feel about the uh, blanket universal checks. We do. Senator Toomey, thank you for your time today. It's good to see you. All right. Thanks, Becky. Coming up, the last unicorn in our Squawk Pod stable, Uncork. CEO and founder Gary Hoberman on how he's changing the way enterprise businesses build themselves without using a single line of code. We're spending $500 billion every year in enterprise technology, creating what looks like ancient Greek. And in reality, it's not working. We'll be right back. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. For our last interview of the Billion Dollar Plus Club series, Uncork. If you've been with us all week, you heard about Clavio on Monday and MessageBird on Tuesday. Check those unicorn tales out on the Squawk Pod feed. Today, though, we're spotlighting Uncork, the three-year-old software platform that's enabling clients like Goldman Sachs, Liberty Mutual, and the City of New York to build their own custom software without writing a single line of code. 
Uncork broke into unicorn territory in October when it raised a Series C mega funding round that bumped its valuation to $2 billion. One of Uncork's investors is Capital G, Alphabet's independent growth fund. In their market research prior to backing the startup, they found that the no-code or even low-code software market is a lot bigger than you might think. 84% of enterprises are already using it, and the global IT expenditure on custom software for 2020 is estimated to be about $500 billion, and Capital G is betting that it's just getting started. Layla Sturdy, Capital G general partner and board member for Uncork, joined our TV broadcast this morning alongside Uncork founder and CEO Gary Hoberman. Sturdy's track record is, well, sturdy. She's backed nine new unicorns since she started at Capital G seven years ago, including Duolingo, the language app, and UiPath, which is valued at over $10 billion and just filed confidentially for an IPO. Here's Joe Kernan kicking off that conversation. Uncork, one of those words without a U. Not many of those around. Qantas, Qantas never crashed. Gary, so all this code I've been learning in my spare time, it, it would, I, I, you don't need me. No, we actually will make you even more effective, Joe. And, and Joe, thank you for having us on. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. And the Q and the C spelling Encore correctly, we just couldn't afford to actually buy the real domain. It was about a half a million dollars. And of course, we self-funded the company. But um, Joe, as you know, software is, software is all around every industry. It's critically important more now than ever in every sector and every location. And 2020 has shown us that being digital is no longer an accessory. It's a necessity to survive. And when you look around, you'll see amazing technologies that have improved our lives, like infrastructure and cloud computing. You'll see security. You'll see analytics analyzing that data. But the reality is, for the last 30 years, there's been no improvement in the way we actually create the software that runs on that infrastructure and creates that data that's being analyzed by all these machine learning technologies. And as a Fortune 50 CIO, for the last 20 years or so, I was a managing director at City, building their infrastructure and trading and markets. And I was also a managing uh, EVP CIO at MetLife, managing 10,000 developers, creating that code. And that's the old way. The traditional way, Joe, that if you learn today how to create code and what code is, for those who don't know, it's basically like learning ancient Greek. It's, it's a language. You have to learn it. You have to master it. It takes 10,000 hours to become proficient at it. And that language itself is legacy the second it's written and created. So we're spending $500 billion every year in enterprise technology creating what looks like ancient Greek. And in reality, it's not working. So Uncork is the new way to create software. So we are able to create the most complex enterprise-grade, secure, compliant software with nothing more than visual drag and drop, which I could easily teach you and show you myself. And it's something which we are revolutionizing the way software is being written and created that runs on the infrastructure and is analyzed by that data and security. We are, when you look at our numbers, it speaks for ourselves. So we were founded in 2017 and we're worth over $2 billion just a few years later, really based on success with our clients. You had me at hello with... Uh, Could I register not, you in our training, not, Joe? Yeah, we could do no, it right now. I it's the non-training that I like. Layla, when did... How did this uh, get on your radar, and, and how, when did you realize the potential, and, and how long have you known Gary, et, et cetera? 
So Capital G led our investment in Uncork uh, at the end of 2019. We led the Series B, and I joined the board then. And I had been spending a lot of time studying no-code software prior to that because of some of the, the things that Gary spoke about. So the demand for digital transformation is at an all-time high. Inside of many companies, you see the development pipeline of the software that they need to build to, to serve their customers on the front end, to power the back end, and there's just no way for them to get through that development platform, so they need a better way. And so I studied a lot of the different no-code platforms out there. And when I met Gary, I immediately knew he was the type of entrepreneur I wanted to work with. He has this deep understanding of the customer pain point from his years working at these Fortune 50 companies. And he understands how software is built inside of those enterprises. But he also understood there needs to be a better and faster way to do it. And that was exactly what Uncork has provided. So Uncork is a no-code platform that many different users can create the software that has the scale, that's secure, that has the features to build these mission-critical applications, but they can do it much faster and much better. So when I spoke to the customers at Uncork prior to our investment, I found customers that were thrilled with the results and were ready to build their second, third, fourth, fifth application. And I knew this was the type of team and company I wanted to work with. I mean, I, I'm, I'm understanding just enough to be excited uh, about this. <laughs> and uh, I don't know how far I want to go with this. Someone once bought me a book about writing code. Uh, introductory. I mean, as introductory. And I, I went the first two pages. I said, forget it. Uh, there are people that know how to do. I'm not going to build bridges or do any brain surgery. I mean, I don't need to. Anyway, um, I just I had one more question, but we have to have you back because not not this can't replace everything. It just can augment things. Right. I mean, there still will be code software. Right. I, our goal is to be a big four tech company, Joe. We, we could replace, you know, everything around it. And wow. we're doing okay. it today. All, of our customers. all right. Uh, I want to talk more more about this. And I'll talk to uh, uh, to Vanna. Maybe you can buy a vowel. Um, buy you or something. They're, they're, I think they're $100 or something. But I never understand why people do it. They spend their money and you can see what... Anyway, that's a different... Uh, thank you, Gary and Layla. It's great to have you on. <laughs> Becky, did I just cop to watching Wheel of Fortune? I didn't want to do that. Uh, but would anyone really be surprised? No. <laughs> While you eat your soup? Through <laughs> it with a straw. That's the show for today. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you're listening now. And don't forget to give us a rating or a review or tweet at us, or all three. We're at Squawk CNBC. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. 